turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to look at verses 14 to 21. A very familiar passage. It says, And he went, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. But they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. And ordering the crowds to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate, besides women and children. Our study this morning brings us to the high point in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, a very familiar account that we know as the feeding of the 5,000. And this should be particularly familiar to you because Steve just taught this miracle in, from Luke's gospel uh, on January 14th and 21st, uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I promise I won't say everything he said, uh, but I'm sure there's going to be some overlap. Uh, perhaps, uh, particularly since he referenced Matthew's account several times uh, in those two messages. Uh, this particular miracle is the only miracle recorded by all four gospel writers. Uh, and so it is obvious that it is of a special quality or the Holy Spirit would not have inspired its repetition in all four of the gospel accounts. In fact, each writer not only includes the miracle, but places it at the climax of Jesus' ministry. Uh, when Jesus began his great Galilean ministry, he sought publicity. Uh, he sought out the crowds. He went from town to town, city to city, synagogue to synagogue, seeking to make his name known to them. He demonstrated his power through mighty works of healing and even raising the dead. He taught them about the kingdom of God and what was required in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. He wanted to manifest himself as the king offering a kingdom. And as we have seen him do that in our study of Matthew, uh, we have noted that the religious leadership has rejected him and that as he has become more well-known to the populace, uh, but there's this rising hostility towards him, against him. And so as we come to this particular miracle, his popularity reaches a pinnacle. In fact, the result of this miracle is that many, if not most, of the people in Galilee want to take him by force and make him the king. Uh, they're enamored with him. They're fascinated with him. They're in awe of him. They willingly follow him. This is a high point. But it also marks the beginning of his withdrawal. Uh, because just prior to this very high point of popularity, Herod has murdered John the Baptist. Uh, and so now there's not only religious hostility from the Pharisees and the religious leaders, there's also political hostility as well. And Herod is that petty monarch who rules the area of Galilee, who's afraid of Jesus and thus feels threatened by him, uh, as he was by John the Baptist. And so because of the hostility 
of both the religious leaders and the political leaders, Jesus begins to withdraw following this miracle. It's clear that even among those who see him as the king, there's great superficiality and shallowness. Uh, and so in a very real sense, he's now threatened by his enemies, both the Pharisees and the Herodians. Uh, and he's even under threat by his would-be friends, the, the crowd that wants to push him into some kind of a political monarchy, uh, as, which is not at all a part of God's design as evidenced by his statement in John 18, 36, where he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, that is, it is not the same kind of kingdom as mankind's kingdoms. So because of all of these converging pressures, this is the pinnacle of his popularity. And at the same time, marks his departure into seclusion that begins from here on out. So, as, so that as we move through the last year of his life, he spends most of his time with only the 12 disciples, readying them for what is about to happen at his death and resurrection and preparing them for the task at hand as they are going to be the foundation for the building of the church. And so all the gospel writers mark out this miracle as a very climactic moment in the life of Jesus. Now I want to point out something very interesting here. Matthew has a marvelous way of linking together two incidents that occurred back to back, namely Herod's birthday party and the feeding of the multitude. Uh, don't miss the contrast between these two events. Uh, you might think, well, they occurred back to back, so it makes sense for Matthew to record them back to back. But this is an example of how God superintends the events that take place so that we can observe the contrast between how the unholy world behaves and how the thrice holy God behaves. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce describes this contrast very well. Here's what he writes. He says, the first party is given by a king in his palace, the second by a Galilean preacher in the desert. The first was for the important people of this world, the second for the masses. The first was for Herod, it was his birthday. The second was centered on the crowds. The first was a drunken orgy, the second a pleasant country meal. The first was immoral, the high point was Salome's provocative dance. The second followed holy edifying teaching by the Lord. The first ended with the murder of John the Baptist. The second with the feeding of those who had no food. The first was for this world only. The second anticipated the heavenly marriage supper to which people from every tribe and nation are invited and to which the poor of many nations will come." End quote. What explains this contrast? The answer is that Herod cared for no one but himself. His actions were carried out because of his fear of his wife, the desire to save face before his friends, and his lust for power. By way of contrast, Jesus cared for other people. He took time to heal and teach and feed them, even though his first desire was to be alone with his disciples and teach them. And that tells us that this miracle teaches us of God's care for the needs of the lowly and the poor. Uh, Herod cared only for himself. Jesus cared for other people. And we're to follow Christ's example. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. That was what Jesus did. He humbly gave up his desire for a time of quiet solitude and reflection with his disciples to serve this very needy crowd. 
Now, as we go through this passage, I want you to see a series of points that will give us an understanding of what's taking place here. And then we're going to look at several lessons that are taught by this wonderful account. Now, while it's not specifically a part of this passage, verse 13, which we saw previously, does tie into the story. Uh, so I want to look at it briefly to introduce this miracle, and we'll call it the desire for privacy. Look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. It says at the beginning of verse 13, when Jesus heard. If you have a paper copy of a New American Standard Bible, you'll see that the words about John are in italics immediately after that statement. Uh, that tells you those words are not in the original text. Uh, but they're implied because verse 12, right before that, tells us that John the Baptist's disciples went and told Jesus about John's execution by Herod. So when Jesus heard about John's death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Why? Was he afraid of Herod? Not at all. Not at all. But he would not expose himself needlessly to the imminent danger of such a person as Herod, whom he later called a sly fox. Uh, but if Herod was intimidated by John the Baptist, and so intimidated not only by John, but by his own wife and by the people around him, so that he murdered John the Baptist, he would stop at nothing uh, to murder the one whom John the Baptist announced as the true king. Jesus knew fully uh, that Herod's father, Herod the Great, had murdered every male child in the vicinity of Jerusalem and Bethlehem in order that he might stamp out uh, one who was supposed to be the king. And this, his son, was, was perhaps do no less if he were convinced that Jesus was a true threat to his reign. And so Jesus withdraws privately by boat across the Sea of Galilee to a wilderness place. It's also important to understand that Jesus knew that the people also saw the Messiah as a political ruler, as a king who would overthrow the Herodian dynasty and overthrow the Roman monarchy and establish independence and freedom for the land of Israel. And because he knew that that was the people's perception, he knew that's what would come back to Herod. And it would only complicate and endanger both him and his disciples to a greater extent. And so he sought privacy and seclusion. Now when it says he withdrew by himself, that doesn't mean he went by himself without anyone else. We know from other gospel accounts that the 12 disciples were with him. Uh, the term by himself means he was intending to avoid the crowds and go to an isolated place to rest and avoid all the potential dangers. Now, it wasn't easy for Jesus to find privacy in Galilee. I mean, first of all, the area is very small. Uh, it's an area about 50 miles long and 25 miles wide. And there are 204 towns and villages in it. Um, it's about the size of the state of Rhode Island. Uh, and secondly, because of all of his miracles of healing and his marvelous teaching, people were seeking him out. So for him to find a place of seclusion would indeed be a very difficult thing. Uh, but he sought it out, so he and his disciples went across the lake by boat to a wilderness area. He needed some rest and refreshment. He needed solitude to spend time praying to the Father, to mourn the death of his cousin and forerunner, John the Baptist. Uh, he knew now that the cross 
loomed in the relatively near future. And it was only about a year from now he would be crucified. Luke and Mark tell us that his disciples were with him. They had returned from their uh, short-term mission of preaching and proclaiming the kingdom, healing diseases, casting out demons throughout Galilee. And they would come back and it was a time for fellowship and debriefing, if you will, as to what took place on their mission. It was a time of important instruction for them. Luke 9.10 tells us that he went to a place called Bethsaida. Uh, and basically that name refers to both a small city and the region in which it's located. The city of Bethsaida was located on the northern shore, uh, side of the Sea of Galilee, on the east side of the Jordan River, uh, where it enters the lake on the north end. Uh, it was about six miles east of Capernaum. Uh, today, it would be cons uh, considered to be in the area known as the Golan Heights, uh, but down at a lower level closer to the lake. Uh, now, if we only had Luke's account of this miracle, we might think that Jesus and his disciples arrived, went up the slope from the shore to the higher elevation, and spent time resting and recuperating among the trees up on the hillside. Uh, while they reported to him and he taught them until they're finally interrupted by the crowd which came there to find him. But that's not all that happened there. According to Mark's account, the people saw Jesus and the disciples leaving the boat. And Mark 6.33 says, Many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. So the people saw Jesus and the others leaving in the boat and which direction they were going. So they head out on foot uh, and ran those six miles or so and arrived uh, before Jesus and the disciples. And according to both Matthew and Mark, a large crowd was already there. Uh, John tells us that Jesus saw the crowd and went up on the side of the mountain with his disciples and let the crowd gather before him. So the desire for privacy is overruled in that it's overruled by our second point, which is the deeds of compassion. Look at verse 14. And when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. John 6, 2 and 3 adds the following information for us. It says, Now a large crowd was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was doing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he was sitting down with his disciples. And then verse 4 has this detail that's not in any of the other Gospels. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. I think that's John's way of saying that not only was this crowd uh, made up of local residents of Galilee, but there was also a bunch of pilgrims uh, on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. So not only were there local men who were following after Jesus with many of their wives and children with him, but the pilgrim families that were headed towards Jerusalem and joined in would have added to the size of the crowd. So there were a lot of women and children also in the crowd. You see, these pilgrims would have been passing through Galilee and would have seen all of the locals heading off, talking about this incredible miracle-working rabbi uh, who could heal any disease and even raise the dead. And so many of those pilgrims would have undoubtedly joined the crowd. You see, this really wasn't out of the way for them. Uh, because Jews traveling from Galilee to Judea didn't usually go through Samaria. Uh, normally, they traveled along a route near the Jordan River and a few miles south of the Sea of Galilee. 
they would cross over the Jordan into Perea, continue south, and then cross back over into Judea, just north of the Dead Sea. That way they avoided going through Samaria. Uh, and that's why it's so significant that in John 4, 4, you remember, uh, it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Um, Jesus did what most Jews, Jews did not do unless they had to, and Jesus had to because he had a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, but some of these pilgrims who were headed south through Galilee and heard about Jesus, instead of proceeding south along the west side of the Sea of Galilee, they could have just turned and crossed the Jordan above the Sea of Galilee, joined the locals and attended this gathering, and then proceeded on south along the western side of the lake through the Decapolis and Perea, and then on to Jerusalem. Uh, I have no doubt that the crowd was a bit larger than usual because of the addition of some of the pilgrims headed to the Passover feast. And that's why John includes that detail in his narrative. And not only to give us a reference of the time of the year that this miracle took place, but also to explain the incredible size of the crowd. So the people were definitely impressed with Jesus. They had seen him heal diseases. Uh, that was, of course, be very impressive. Uh, John says that's what attracted them. People are always drawn to those who might be able to heal them, even to the would-be false healers, uh, not to say of one who's legitimately demonstrated multiplied healings. And so the crowd begins to accumulate from Capernaum and Chorazin and the town of Bethsaida and other little towns and villages around Galilee. Frankly, the majority of them were thrill-seekers. Uh, they sought him not because they wanted to believe what he said, not because they wanted to worship and adore him. They sought him for the simple reason that they saw the diseases that he healed and they wanted to get on it. Maybe it was for their own disease or disability or for a family member, but if not, at least to see it happen to somebody else. Um, and we might say they're like the shallow soil of the parables in the parable of the soils, or maybe like the thorny soil. Uh, there was an initial curiosity. There was an initial interest and excitement about him. But, and believe me, this group was excited. By the time this event is over, they want to take Jesus by force and make him the king. Uh, They're saying to themselves, this may be the Messiah. We've never seen such power before. He can provide all the food we want. Uh, we don't have to work so hard to get it. He'll heal all our diseases. We'll just, let's make him king. And so there was a certain kind of curiosity. The seed had taken root in the ground, but the soil is very shallow and very thorny. And their love of the world and their love of riches and their desire not to pay any price at all in such an enterprise causes them ultimately to vanish from the scene and walk away from Jesus Christ. Their perspective was totally self-centered. They were self-indulgent. They wanted to follow him for healings and the free food. They would like him to pull off a revolution, throw out their oppressors, create the perfect welfare state. They would like him to establish utopia. They're like all the thrill seekers today who follow Jesus for their own self-indulgent purposes. Uh, they're not the true worshipers who the Father seeks. Their commitment is choked out by the love of indulgence and by their own shallowness. But in spite of their attitude towards them, notice that Jesus responds to them with compassion. Uh, 
God pities and extends compassion and mercy in Christ to the thrill-seekers, those very shallow people, again revealing the heart of God towards all people, even those who do not understand, who will not believe, who, who ultimately reject the truth. Notice 14, verse 14 again. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. He lands on the shore and he sees this crowd gathering, and believe me, it's getting larger all the time. And instead of ignoring them, he, he and the disciples went up on the side of the mountain and Jesus sat down and they began bringing all their sick and disabled to him. And he would have been able to look down the side of the mountain and see that large crowd that verse 21 tells us contained about 5,000 men. You can be sure there were several thousand women included because while women were not often valued highly, by most men in the Middle East for anything other than bearing children and preparing food, women were particularly attracted to Jesus because he showed them kindness. Uh, he healed the, women, the woman with the bleeding problem. He showed kindness towards the woman caught in adultery. There were several women who were a part of his followers. And in addition to them, these women that were in the crowd, there would have been a whole lot of children in the crowd, perhaps 10,000 or more. Uh, in those days, the Jews believed what Psalm 127 said. He said, children are inheritance of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Uh, so families were large, similar to Jesus' own family, where there was a minimum of seven children. Uh, so this crowd may easily have been 15 to 20,000 people. Uh, in John MacArthur's commentary on this gospel, he states that the crowd may have been as high as 25,000 uh, because of the number of children who were present. So this great crowd has found its way to the soft grassy slope by the sea, and Jesus goes up the hill, sits down, looks out over this vast crowd below him, and says he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Uh, the word translated felt compassion is a word which literally means his stomach churned with emotion. Uh, we say the same thing when we feel some tremendous emotion, whether good or bad, we say, my stomach turned, or I felt it in my gut. Uh, Jesus felt their pain. He felt their hurt. He felt their needs. And so he healed their sick. I, lo I love the way Mark expresses what Jesus felt. Mark 6.34 says, he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, and as the consequence, not only did he heal their illnesses, but Mark also tells us he began to teach them many things. Uh, Luke tells us he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. So this was more than just a healing event. It was also a teaching session. Jesus was proclaiming spiritual healing the entire time. He was also physically healing those who needed it. You know, I suppose that from an entirely human perspective, if we were one of the disciples, we would have, may have said, listen, people, please go away. Jesus' cousin just got beheaded by Herod. He's grieving. He needs some time to rest and recuperate. Come back in a few days. But the text says he felt compassion for them. His heart went out to them. It wasn't so much a cognitive thing in which he thought about what he ought to do. It, it wasn't so much that he just reasoned in his divine mind, well, the right thing to do is to heal them. The term felt compassion speaks of a visceral reaction. Uh, he felt their pain. He hurt for them. He felt it in his gut. Uh, 
Although Jesus was God in flesh, he's not coldly calculating and analytical in terms of the needs of men. He was passionate. He felt the pain in his own heart. He truly grieved for them. Jesus felt genuine pain and emotion, just like when he stood over the city of Jerusalem with, I'm sure, tears running down his cheeks and said, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you did not want it. Or as he stood at the grave of Lazarus and tears flowed down his cheeks. Or as he was entering the city on the donkey's colt during his triumphal entry and he lamented over the city, weeping and sobbing, wailing out loud. Think of that. that it's not the picture we normally see in, of Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. But that's the word that was used. He's coming into the city sobbing because of the judgment that's coming on it because it did not recognize the time of its visitation. He was the same God now incarnate who told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 13 to warn Israel that it needed to repent of all of its evil or else it would face certain judgment and destruction. And then he said, but if you will not listen to it, my soul will cry in secret for such pride and my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of Yahweh has been taken captive. That's a, this is a mark of God. Psalm 146 says that Yahweh gives food to the hungry and opens the eyes of the blind, raises up those who are bowed down, and helps the orphan and the widow. God's heart goes out to those in need. It's not an issue of whether they will respond or reciprocate by believing. It's that God's heart goes out to those in need anyway. And so Jesus felt pain in his visceral area. His heart was grieving when he saw the crowd. Now think about this. As God, Jesus knew exactly who in that crowd would trust, truly trust in him and who would not. And the majority would not. They were only there for the miracles. But in his divine mind, he had a perfect perception of hell and the eternal state of each person in that crowd. Can you think of any greater reason why he wouldn't suffer and grieve for them? He knew each one of their, them. He knew their eternal destiny. And yet he felt great compassion for them and took the time to call them to faith in him, to warn them of the wrath to come and to heal their sick. It's all encompassed in what Mark and Luke meant when they say Jesus was teaching them many things about the kingdom of God. He was proclaiming the gospel to them, and in his compassion, he also healed their sick. The word sick literally means the ones without strength or the powerless ones. It's used to refer to anyone who was sick, ill, feeble, or disabled. These individuals and their families had made great sacrifice to even be there. Many of them probably had to be carried by their family members. Others may have been able to walk, but only with a cane or crutches. And there were those who were blind who needed someone to guide them, regardless of how they got there. Their presence speaks of their hope that they would find some healing when they got there, and they did. Jesus healed them. He set aside his opportunity to rest. He set aside his priority of time with the disciples. He even set aside his time alone with the Father. And that gives us hope in our times of need because it tells us that God is never too involved in the running of the universe and dealing with all the major events around us that are going on in this world that he doesn't have time for us. We often think that way, don't we? But he's infinitely omnipotent and omniscient. He knows all of our needs and is so loving 
that as our Heavenly Father, He can effortlessly stoop to listen to our cries and meet our need in a way which He knows is best for us during our times of sorrow and concern. But the deeds of compassion are also overruled in this story because as great as it was that Jesus healed all these people of a wide variety of disabling conditions, that was seemingly lost on the disciples. So we come next to the dullness of the disciples. Look at verses 15 to 17. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. Day is over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only two lo five loaves here and two fish. It had been a busy day for the disciples. First of all, they steered and rowed the boat across the Sea of Galilee. When they arrive, only then they arrive only to see a large crowd that's rapidly growing larger. And instead of sending them away, Jesus receives them. And he spends the day teaching them and healing their sick. You don't see all of that in Matthew's recollection of the account. Uh, between verses 14 and 15, there's an interlude that you have to understand. Uh, so turn over for a moment to John 6. We're going to fill in the gap. In John 6, we have John's account of the very same event. Jesus is sitting on the side of the mountain with the disciples. John tells us what happens next. Beginning in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So this is earlier in the day. Uh, he just plants the problem in Philip's mind and then goes off and spends the day healing and teaching this massive crowd. But before he even started that, he plants this question in Philip's mind. Where are we going to buy bread to feed this group? Now, there are several reasons why he asked that to Philip. First of all, Philip was from the area. So he would have known where the closest public store in Bethsaida was located. Uh, he would have known where the closest bakeries were located. Secondly, Philip was probably the guy in charge of logistics for Jesus and the disciples. He would have been the guy who figured out how much food they needed for the group, where to buy it, when they got to where they were going, and so forth. We know Judas was the keeper of the money, but someone had to be in charge of making arrangements to buy food and taking care of that sort of thing. So it would have been a natural thing for Jesus to ask Philip such a question. And third, verse 6 says, He, that's Jesus, said this to test him, that's Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew that he was what he was planning to do, but he wanted to challenge Philip's thinking. You know, Philip was basically a lot like us. He was so thick-skulled, you could hit him with a, on the head with a tire iron, and he wouldn't yell ouch until the next day. Uh, I mean, he was as dull as a mashed potato sandwich. Uh, he was just not real sharp. Uh, it took him a long time to get the picture. So in John 14, 8 and 9, we're told, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus says, how long have I been with you and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me, seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So the Lord knew just how incredibly dense Philip was. So this was a test designed just for him. He says, now, Philip, I'm going to go down there and heal these people and teach them about the kingdom. While I'm doing that, I want you to work on the details of how we're going to feed all these people. 
Now, Philip obviously must have gone to the rest of the disciples and said, hey, guys, we've got to figure out how to feed these people. Jesus asked me how we're going to do it. I'm sure he and Peter and Andrew all consulted together on the problem because they were all originally from Bethsaida, and so they knew what markets and bakeries were in the area. And he had to have consulted with Judas Iscariot to find out how much money they had in the money bag because that's indicated by verse 7. But the disciples thought about the problem all day and never came up with an answer. So in verse 7, Jesus says to Philip says to Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each one of them to get a little. In other words, Lord, I checked with Judas Iscariot. He says we only have 200 denarii in our money bag. That's all we've got. And even if we find a place to buy enough bread, that's not enough money. Uh, even if we used all of our money, we couldn't get enough for everyone to get a bite or two. There's simply no way it can be done with what we've got. I mean, Andrew was standing there next to Philip, sort of like moral support, and sort of tongue-in-cheek, he says, well, Lord, I've been through the whole group, and there's this boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what, what are they for so many? Uh, barley was the cheapest grain, and so the common people would use it to make little biscuit-like loaves of bread, and then they would dry or pickle the small mushed fish that they caught from the lake to preserve them. So this little boy had brought along a lunch with him of these five little barley loaves and like biscuits and two of these small fish. And so Andrew makes this almost offhand statement, possibly with a little bit of sarcasm in it, to Jesus trying to show how impo absolutely impossible it is for them to feed this huge crowd. And so Andrew and Philip basically tell the Lord, there's two problems here, Master. We don't have enough money to buy food, and there isn't enough food here to feed the crowd. It's impossible. Now let's go back to our text in Matthew 14. Matthew 14. Verse 15 begins by saying, Now when it was evening. So the disciples experience this all-day test of trying to figure out how they're going to feed the crowd. And it's finally evening time. And they're still no closer to a solution than they were at the first. Now, you must understand that the Jews had two periods of the day that were referred to as evening. There was the first one was from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. And the second one was from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. This is the first evening, what we refer to in our culture as late afternoon. So the disciples have spent the day watching Jesus heal, perhaps several hundred people out of that crowd. And now... When it gets to be later in the day, instead of answering Jesus' earlier question about how they're going to feed all these people, look what they say in verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the day is over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Their answer to Jesus' question is, Lord, it's late. We're out here in the backwoods where there isn't anything else. So send the crowd away so they can get to the villages and buy some food before it's too late. That's their solution. Lord, just get rid of them. Send them away. Now you would think that these guys who had seen Jesus walk into Galilee and heal everybody in sight, had seen him create wine at a wedding, who had seen him raise the dead, who had seen him calm the sea and, and control the wind, who had seen miracle after miracle after miracle, who had seen him do the same thing through them in their recent ministry, and spent the entire day watching him heal hundreds of people, would have said, Lord, you can do it. 
Just say, let there be food. And it'll appear. But that doesn't seem like too much faith when you've seen as much as they've seen, does it? But they're thick. They're thick. It's like a man standing outside in the snow, freezing to death, looking through the window of a house at a roaring fire in the fireplace and wondering where he can go to get warm. You know, the answer's right in front of them. They're too blind to see it. Now, before you criticize them too strongly, remember how many times in your own life in the past that God has met your needs and how you struggled or perhaps you're currently struggling trying to figure out where the resources are going to come from today or tomorrow or sometime in the future. And so the disciples go to Jesus and since they have no answer, they say, send them away, Lord. Get rid of them. Let them figure this out on their own. Verse 16. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Can you imagine what the thought was that ran through the disciples' heads? Sure, just give them food. We don't have any food. Jesus knew that. So why would he say that? Give them something to eat. Very simple. He's making them face the fact that they don't have any food. You say, but they already knew that. Yes, but he wanted to be certain that they would understand completely they had no resources to meet this need. The emphatic force of Jesus' statement doesn't come across as forcefully in English as it does in the original Greek. It's almost as if he said, you, you give them something. Why are you coming to me? He, he wanted them to understand they could do nothing in themselves. He's deliberately putting them in a box, as it were. They, they didn't have enough money. They didn't have enough food. And now he won't let them send away the crowd. But instead, he insists that they feed them. They're stuck in both they and he know it. He, he wants them to come to him for the supply. Verse 17. Now they say, we have here only two, uh, five, five loaves and two fish. And as I said, I think Andrew was the spokesman at this point, who is the spokesman, is, is a bit frustrated with Jesus' instruction. And there's, there's almost a sense of sarcasm in his statement. They, they can't believe Jesus is giving them this command to feed this massive crowd when the only food that's anywhere to be seen is a kid's lunch. So right now, so now they are right where the Lord wants them to be. It's very important that they say, we haven't got what we need and we can't get it. If you look at the food we've got, it isn't enough. If you look at what we could get with the money we've got, it isn't enough either. So we haven't got it and we can't get it. That's a great spiritual lesson for all of us. You haven't got it and you can't get it any more than they could. That's the, it's the dullness of their perspective. And despite watching him spend the day creating new bones and muscles and lame legs and giving sight to blind eyes and new fresh skin to lepers, not one of them says, Hey guys, the master can just create the food we need. Not one of them says that. They just want to get rid of the problem by sending the crowd away. And then Jesus gives them another interesting command. That brings us to our next point, which is the display of power. Look at verses 18 to 21. And he said, bring them here to me. 
And ordering the crowds to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets, and there were about 5,000 men who ate, besides women and children. In verse 18, Jesus says, Bring them here to me. Bring me those five little bread cakes and two fish. Now, in a sense, he's saying to them, I knew you didn't have enough food or money to feed the people, and I knew you had no way of getting it. When I asked you to feed them, I was asking you to trust me. So now I want you to give me the only food that's available. And then in verse 9, he does a very strange, 19, he does a very strange thing. Matthew says he commanded the crowd to sit down on the grass. Luke tells us that he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Uh, Mark 6.40 tells us they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Uh, the Greek term, which Mark uses here, is prosiai, prosiai. Prosiai, prosiai. Which literally means garden bed by garden bed. In other words, the people were set in squares with paths between the groups, like you would plant a garden. Uh, that made it easy for the disciples to walk between the groups when they're serving the food. And so the crowd sat down. I'm, I'm sure there was a great sense of anticipation about why Jesus was giving such a command. But they're all seated in their groups, watching and wondering what's about to happen. And then verse 19 continues by telling us he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food. Notice that Matthew says he blessed the food. John 6, 11 says he gave thanks. Uh, therefore, we conclude that saying thanks to God and blessing God are the same thing. When you gather for a meal, many people will say, let's ask the Lord to bless his food, while others say, let's thank the Lord for this food. Uh, they're synonymous terms. Uh, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Matthew doesn't mention the fish, but both Luke and John tell us that Jesus broke the fish apart also, and they were also distributed to the people. Uh, the miracle is almost hidden, isn't it? There's no fanfare. He didn't stand up and shout, be multiplied! You know, uh, like the today's fraudulent faith healers might do. You know, there's no angels flying over dropping food on the crowd. Uh, there's nothing dramatic about it all. He just starts breaking bread and fish and passing it out to the disciples and they're handing it out to the people. It's just a continuous multiplication of the fish and the bread as he broke it. He just created the meal right in his hands. Now you might ask, well, how much was there? Well, verse 20 says they all ate and were satisfied. The word satisfied is a Greek word that was used of an animal which gorges itself on the feed in the feed trough. It means to eat until you are filled, stuffed to the gills. It, is, it wasn't that they each got enough to just barely relieve their hunger. Every one of the people in that crowd ate barley loaves and fish until they were stuffed. They each got as much as they could eat, all they wanted. Isn't that like our Lord? He doesn't say, here, now just take a bite or two. Leave enough so everybody else can get some. No, he says, eat all you want. There's plenty for everyone. By the way, that's the same word used in the Beatitudes back in Matthew 5, 6, where it says, 
those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And we see it also, interestingly enough, in Revelation 19.21, where the birds are called to the great supper of God so they can gorge themselves in the flesh of the slain enemies of the Lord who will wage war against them. So the word carries the idea of eating an abundance of food. And of course, there's plenty of leftovers. The end of verse 20 says, they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full, 12 full baskets. That's interesting. How many disciples were there? Well, when the meal's over and they gather up all the leftovers, there stands the 12 disciples, each one of them holding a basket full of bread and fish. And those aren't little baskets. The Greek word refers to a basket that held between one and a quarter and two and a half gallons. They weren't one or two quart baskets. They were big baskets. You say, why so many leftovers? Why so much? Because Jesus wanted these disciples to realize he was God, and thus his miraculous power is infinite, his provisions abundant. He wanted each one of them to have a visible illustration of that in his own hands. That's the economy of God. He doesn't waste his miracles. You say, well, what about Jesus? There wasn't a basket full for him. Yeah, and that was going to be another lesson for the disciples. If he was going to eat, guess where he'd have to get it? From them they would learn the lesson of giving back to God a portion of that which he has provided for them. Well, how many did Jesus feed? Let me see where I'm at. Yes, let me finish it. How many did he feed? Verse 21 says about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. As we said before, there are probably 15 or 20,000 people in the crowd. But more importantly, what's the reaction of the group? I'll tell you what it was. John 6 tells us. In verse 14 of John 6, John says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, they were saying, This is truly the prophet who's come into the world. So they believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of a messianic prophecy made by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. This miracle, no doubt, reminded them of Moses and the manna that God provided for Israel in the wilderness. They don't believe Jesus is God, but they do believe he's a prophet. And so look what they do. Verse 15 of John 6. So Jesus, knowing they were going to come didn't take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They planned to force Jesus to become their king. Why? Because they realized he can heal their diseases and provide them with real food. Anyone who has the power to, to heal all their diseases, cast out demons, raise the dead, give free food, could overthrow the Romans and usher in utopia. And so Jesus ships the disciples out of there, sends away the crowd, and goes up, the mountain into seclusion by himself. There's several lessons here that are the sum of what the Lord wants to teach us in this incident, but you're going to have to come back later to hear those. Um, and it's going to be a while. It's going to be two weeks because uh, because of my dad's memorial service next weekend. Uh, I've asked with all the activities that I've got to do uh, this week. Uh, I have asked Frank to fill in for me next Sunday. So he'll be teaching next Sunday and then I'll finish this the week after that. Frank, you know what you're going to teach on yet? Continuing on the Church of Philadelphia. Okay. All right. Frank, would you close us in prayer? Our Father, we bow before you and thank you for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this example in life and 